If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to John 16. John 16 is where we'll be this morning. And you might have noticed um, that we have uh, some new Bibles in front of you in the pews. And so uh, we did that intentionally because our desire is that uh, you would be able to have access to uh, God's Word. And um, I happen to know that uh, with paper copies, you won't be distracted by a a text message that will pop up in front of uh, your paper copy or um, of any news alert. Uh, And as well, we want you to be able to, uh, to know that it's a symbol in a way that we're communicating that God's word is supreme here. And so um, if you would, in that Bible, it's page uh, 1072, but for the rest of us, we're in John 16, verse four. And we'll go through verse 15 uh, today, but I wanna end, I wanna begin where we're gonna end today, and I wanna read verse 14 first, okay? Jesus has been speaking to his disciples And this is what he says. He speaks of the Holy Spirit in verse 14. He says, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, our desire is that we would not miss anything starting now and then going into this next week that your Holy Spirit desires for us to have. Holy Spirit, what do you want to reveal to us that comes from the Father and through the Son? Holy Spirit, would you, would you reorient us to your convicting work of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Holy Spirit, would you show us what it means to understand that your ministry is really all about pointing us to Jesus primarily Lord, let us, let us see the purpose of why we have the Spirit in our life. That's, that's all we're asking today. Help us. Amen. Um, so I want to begin, and it's, and it's through the prayer. You, you've already caught this. And I want to ask you those questions, two questions this morning. I want to begin, and I want to ask you, um, if you had to explain who the Holy Spirit is to a small child some of our elementary teachers are, are smirking right now. Um, how would you do it? So if you had a six-year-old, and I think it was, this quote's been uh, attributed to Albert Einstein, that if you can't explain something to a six-year-old, you don't really know it yourself. If you had to explain who the Holy Spirit was to a six-year-old, they said, lay it on me, tell me what it's all about. How would you do it? Okay, first question. Then the second question is assuming that you have a right understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, what would you say would be his primary mission? What's the primary mission of the Holy Spirit? Is it to give us spiritual gifts? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? To give us things, answer prayer? What would you say that it would be? Um, My son, August, um, has decided um, after three whole years of life to join us uh, in the church service uh, this morning. He's no longer two, but he's three. And so we've been working on two and then three. And um, he will uh, be with us. Um, this is the first day of the next 15 years of his little life. And so I'm very excited as dad for this. 
And so he turned three on Wednesday, and we've been anticipating this question for a long while, okay, so since you're the pastor, does mom and kids, do they sit on the front row? Why can't they sit in the balcony? Why can't they sit in the back of the sanctuary? Are there rules? I didn't see that in my job contract that he's obligated to be right there in the front, and so far, so good. So thanks for your patience, and, um, and we'll see how it goes, right? So anyways, uh, just joining this as mom and dad, it's fun. Uh, but I want to use my son as a, uh, by way of illustration here to get us off the ground. Um, I have used this several times already before with you, but it's good to drill it into our minds. I am a father, and August is my son. He's my, my first of two sons that I have. Um, Samuel is our youngest. And there was a time where I didn't used to be a father. I used to be just Aaron, and then I became a husband uh, to Justine, my wife. Uh, but then there was a moment in time where I began to be a father uh, because I had August. And so that happened. And uh, on top of that, uh, you happen to know that uh, the person who did all the heavy lifting to make sure he came into the world was not me. It was Justine, and I was a witness to that. And so uh, she, has, she gave birth to him, and she has uh, taken care of him and nursed him, and, and, and this could not have been done without just me. And so uh, if you wanted to use the old language from Matthew 1 that talks about though how a, a son relates to his father in a genealogy, if you remember we did that, um, I've referenced this already when we went through uh, our, our brief series in, during Christmas that uh, a father begets, begets this person who begets this person who begets that person. So you want to use that old language, I have begotten August, but there's a lot more to it than that. Now, we've said that there is a difference between how August is from me as opposed to how uh, Jesus is from the Father. If Jesus is God, just think about this for a moment, he's eternal, right? So if he's eternal, there never was a time where the Father began to have a son, right? The Son was always the Son from eternity past. We're doing okay so far? Wrapping your mind around that, Okay. The son was always a son. He was always from the father. There never was a mother either. Someone might say, well, what about Mary? Well, Mary becomes the, the mother of Jesus when he becomes incarnate in his humanity. But when you're talking about eternity past, Christ Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the triune God, has always been from the father. He has proceeded from the Father by way of his eternal generation, that technical term, but he's from the Father eternally. Now, how does the Spirit equate into this, okay? Kind of building what we've been saying the previous weeks. The, the Son is from the Father eternally, but what about the Spirit? Is he, is he, is he, the, is he Jesus's younger brother? Is he just a, a second younger son, well, no, I would say that God has only, the Father has only one son. And so that verse that is so key, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You may have missed that your whole life, right? That, that little word right there carries so much weight to it. Only begotten, that, that term, that he is eternally from the Father. What's the difference with the Holy Spirit and his relation to the Father? Well, last week, we looked at John 14, 26, and it says that he is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and he bears witness about the Son. 
And so if you wanted to explain this to a six-year-old, you would say, Jesus is the son from the father. And you would say, the Holy Spirit is the breath from the father. The spirit is the breath and Jesus is the son. And so if you want that imagery, when the father speaks, Jesus is the word and the spirit is the breath. You with me? Okay? Okay? And so if that's who the spirit is, completely God, the third person of the Godhead, one God, three persons, what does he do? That's the next question. And that's what our text in front of us is going to answer. What does the spirit do? And Jesus begins to tell us what he does, but first he has some words to remind us of about what he's been doing before he sends that good counselor. What is Jesus, as his, him being a good counselor, what has Jesus been doing? And this is what he says in verse four, the second part. Jesus says, I did not say these things. And when he says, I did not say these things, that's referring to everything in the farewell discourse, but specifically that persecution is coming. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now, I am tell, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so the first thing that Jesus does uh, this morning uh, and what he said to the disciples in this time is he wants to uh, first do the obvious, what he's been doing this whole time, remind them that he's leaving and then the second thing is he rebukes them for not asking the right question. He, they don't ask him, where are you going? Now, work with me here. Last time I read this passage, and I went to the beginning of the farewell discourse, isn't this the exact question that Peter asked to get us off the ground to begin with? If I go to, to the beginning, uh, right before John 14, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, literally the exact words, where are you going in John 13? That kicks off the whole farewell discourse. And so you could ask the question, is Jesus, has he developed some amnesia and he forgot the question that Peter asked? Or is he like me when I say I've got, I've got a few points, I gotta, I gotta keep it together, so I got a couple points and I say the first one, but by the time I get through with it, I forgot what the second one is and I say it probably wasn't that important, right? And so... Or maybe, perhaps, uh, Jesus has been asked a question and he uh, begins to answer it and he just kind of goes on and he drifts off and where he ends is nowhere where he began. Uh, I, I would say that my, my grandmother-in-law has this spiritual gift of just going off and we had no idea how she got all the way over there. My sister-in-law is laughing because she's experienced this as well, okay, is with us. And so is that what's happening with Jesus has he forgotten the original question, where are you going? I would say no. And in fact, I would say what's going on here is there's two different ways to ask this question. The first way, Carson is incredibly helpful here. He says it's, it's like a protest. Imagine that a, a, a young boy wants to go fishing with his dad. They schedule a date that they're going to go, and, and they're about to walk out the door. They've got um, everything that they need, and dad gets a call on his phone for an emergency meeting, and he has to go to it. And the son looks at him and says, Dad, where are you going? Does he really care about where his dad has to go, or is it a protest? 
He doesn't really care about where he has to go. He's just mad that he has to go. And that's what Jesus rebukes the disciples for doing here. This is what they're doing. They're protesting that he's leaving. And Jesus says, brothers, you haven't taken the time to really think why I came and where I'm going. You, you haven't taken that time to think about that. And so he, he's rebuking them because he's, they're missing the point of his mission and where he's going back to. And so is he being callous in this moment? You can imagine the disciples hearing that their master is leaving and emotions begin to come up on their faces. You can see maybe Thomas the thinker scrunching his face together, trying to analyze the moments. Maybe Peter is trying to keep it all together for the sake of the other disciples. John beloved, tears are beginning to well down and Jesus is rebuking them in this moment. That would seem to be kind of harsh. It would seem to be that he is not the good counselor. Why are you leaving us? And it's met with a rebuke. What kind of good counselor is this? Well, I know for a fact that he is good. Let me tell you why I know that. Um, a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, there is, there is an event that happens in which Jesus um, performs a miracle in which he raises a man from the dead, and in so doing so, that action leads to his own death at the hands of the religious leaders. And I'm referring to the moment where Jesus raises Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. You may be familiar with this story. In that account in John 11, Jesus has been with the disciples and gets word that one of his friends, Lazarus, has died. And um, there's an awkward moment because you would think he would go down immediately, but he actually doesn't show up until four days later. And if you look at the text, is that what happens is there seems to be an intentional delay on this part so that by the time he shows up to Bethany where, Jesus, uh, where Lazarus has died, um, you can guarantee this guy's really dead. He's been in the grave for four days. He's under, he's, for us, he would be underneath the ground, but for him, he's, he's behind the rock. And so, anyways, he shows up, and as he's there, uh, Martha and Mary come to him. Martha and Mary are the sisters of Lazarus, and Martha first approaches him in her grief, and the text says, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she answered, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. See, Martha had some incorrect thinking about the concept of resurrection. She was a good Jew, so she understood that resurrection, at least up until that time, the, the consensus of, of many was that resurrection would happen for all people at the end of the age. And Jesus is showing up in the middle of time and saying, surprise, I am the resurrection. And so in her grief, he tells her the truth that she needs to hear. Mary. Mary's distraught with grief, and she shows up to him, and she asks the same exact question. 
She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, or same statement, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. And then when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also with her weeping, he was deeply moved. Uh, I would say your, your Bible doesn't, for some reason, I don't know why the translators have, have muffled um, what is actually happening here. But a, a better translation would be that, that Jesus went into a fury and had a hatred towards what was happening. He went into a fury and his spirit was greatly troubled. And so I want you to know this, you who may have experienced the pain and sting of death recently or at some time in the distant past. Jesus, whose heart is gentle and lowly towards you, hates death more than you do. And the text then says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And we get those famous words, Jesus wept. And so for Martha, Jesus spoke the truth, but for Mary, Jesus wept. Jesus is such a good counselor, friends, that he not only knows what's in our minds. I mean, imagine if you could be a counselor, sit down with someone, you know exactly what they needed to hear because you could know what's going on in their mind. But for Jesus and his example here, he knows that sometimes in our grief, we need to be reassured of the truth. Sometimes in our grief, we need to be reassured that he is the one who weeps with us. And sometimes in our grief that may be self-caused or because we don't fully understand his mission and what he is doing in our life and we're being boneheaded, he may even have to rebuke us. And that's what he does with the disciples here. And so friend, I want you to see Jesus as the good counselor this morning, regardless of what you're going through. The good counselor, Jesus, I'll put it this way. You don't need to spend thousands of dollars to go halfway across the world to sit down with a Tibetan, Tibetan monk and sit in a cave and, and try to find serenity. You don't need to read another self-help book. You don't need to find another social media influencer to follow after. You need Jesus Christ, the good counselor, who has made you in his image. He knows everything about you. He knows exactly what you need, when you need it, and he knows always what to say at the right time. He is the one who leads you beside still waters. He is the one who can take you through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the one who can prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies, and they can't do a single thing about it. He's the good counselor, friend. See that. And turn to him. By the way, I would say this too. Find good counselors in your life that will point you to this good counselor. There's a problem with this text, though. And the problem is that um, it's a statement that we say every single Easter. Um, and that statement comes around when Easter comes, and it goes like this He isn't here, He is risen. So how in the world can we say that Jesus is the good counselor if he's not around, if he's not here? How can, how can it really be to our advantage that he's not here? I think the answer is in verse seven. Read with me in verse seven. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This leads us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think what we're going to see is that this ministry of the Holy Spirit has a negative side and it has a positive side to it as well. And so what we just read is the negative side. And let's unpack that now together. It's this negative ministry of convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so you have to ask the question, okay, so, so why does Jesus say I have to leave so that the Spirit comes? Is it because they can't both be in the same room at the same time? That's not the reason. The reason is because the Spirit has come to establish this new covenant so that you would not long to go back to Galilee in the first century, but that you would live in the present moment and in the present moment underneath the power of the Spirit and not just you, all of us who have called on the name of Christ. And so 9 through 11 here, uh, specifically that that one verse, I believe it's in, in verse eight, and when he comes, he will convict this, the world of sin and unrighteousness and judgment. Let's unpack those three words now together. He convicts, that's the main word. It's the word that I don't like very much. And it's a word that, actually I would say, if you, if you said you like being told how much of a sinner you are, I would say you have a problem. I would, I would probably say that to you. Um, conviction is not something that really any of us enjoy. Because when the Spirit convicts the world, he takes our sin, puts it right in front of us and says, look at that. You can't ignore it. And it shows you that you're guilty at the end of the day. That's, what, that's what's right here. And so he convicts of sin because they do not believe in me. The Spirit shows you that at the core, your sin is rooted in unbelief. Answering that question or dealing with that question over and over and over in, in your life did God really say, like the serpent said at the first and deceived Adam and Eve? It's the question you and I deal with all the time. Did God really say, or do I know better? I've shared with some of you, and I've probably shared with many of you by this point, that when I was 16 years old, uh, God got a hold of me in a radical way. And part of that was the realization that after he had saved me, that he had had it out for me for many years up until that point. I've told you about how he, he kind of primed the pump with all those Awana verses I had loaded up in me that when he got a hold of me, the fire of the spirit, it was, like, it was like the spirit was the fire that took that kindling and turned the whole thing on. But the other thing was, when I look back on those moments leading up to my salvation, I could remember this reality. That for some reason, I wonder what it could be, for some reason, whenever I would sin, I could just never fully enjoy it. That by the time I got indulging, done indulging, whatever that thing was, whatever that well was that would eventually run dry, or that idol, whatever it was for me at that time, I would just always end up feeling gross, just going, I know I shouldn't have done that. There was a conviction there. And so you know how I know how much God loved me? It's because he was too jealous for me to too jealous for me to leave me in enjoying my sin by myself. And so I want to say to you, friend, maybe the reason why you can't fully enjoy your sin is actually evidence that God loves you and refuses to allow you to stay where you are at in this present moment. He loves you too much. He will not let you remain comfortable in your sin. Let's go deeper here, okay? 
And I have been waiting for the Lord to find, have the right moment to bring this up. And I think it's the right moment here. And I'll phrase it this way because we have little ones in the room. Your unbelief in the goodness of God that leads to the sin that is in many of our browser histories does not honor him. It brings destruction into your life and the life of those who are around you. you understand, do you understand what I'm getting at here? You, you understand what I'm saying? Those things that you look at that do not honor him, that gratify the flesh, that leave you with self-loathing at the end, God doesn't want that for you. And the fact that you feel that feeling afterwards, just go to the end, skip all the way to the end. And that feeling of embarrassment, I know I should not have done that. Consider for a moment, that's the Lord who refuses to allow you to remain comfortable in your sin where you use other people to gratify the flesh. Worldly shame is that feeling, I heard this recently and I thought this was good. Worldly shame is that feeling that I am something wrong. Godly conviction and guilt is the feeling that I did something wrong. Understand the difference. God is not here to shame you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new is here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But he will not let you stay comfortable in sin. And that's the spirit who says no more. I don't want that for your life. And so I would ask you, consider, consider what the Spirit may be doing in your life right now that leads you to be uncomfortable. It's for a purpose. He has so much better for you. He does not want you continuing making mud pies in the dirt. He wants you to experience and taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's so much better than the sin that we give ourselves over to. And so he calls us to repent. I'd ask you to pray like this. Lord, I'm sorry. I know you have better for me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Make me new and restore me. And he's here to do that. He's here to do that. While you're uncomfortable, let's go to the second point. He convicts of righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father. This is the only time that word righteousness is used in the gospel of John. But John references Isaiah all over the place. And in Isaiah 46.6, Isaiah tells us how God sees our righteousness. And if this offends you, it's just Bible. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteousness, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's a nice way of referring to a menstruous cloth. That's what, that's what your Lord says about your righteousness. And so the Spirit's work is to show you that your righteousness is nothing, friend. It only leads to demonstrating that you're guilty. That's the only thing. And so the Son who has exposed our darkness with his light gives us the Spirit to convict us of our righteousness and shows us that there is something better. And this is the point where I just can't help myself but bring in the gospel. He shows you that your righteousness is nothing, but then he introduces you to the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus in his righteousness goes to a cross. And because of what he has done on the cross, we can grab a hold of that reality, be clothed in Jesus so when the Father looks at you, he looks at you and says, I don't condemn you because Jesus has already stood in your place. 
And so here's good news. Regardless of what you may have done even last night or this last week, if you have put on Jesus Christ by faith, you are not defined by what you do, but you're defined by who he is. And so if you've been hearing me week after week after week, and you've been going, okay, good sermon, I need to go try harder. Brother, you've missed the point. No, you should walk away and go, I don't need to try harder. I need to rest in him and what he has done for me. And I pray that you would rest in him and then out of resting in the reality of who Christ is for you, you can live in freedom. You are no longer slaves to sin. The spirit shows you that you once were, but you no longer have to be. The last thing he does, he convicts the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, for me, I have a few sports apps, and I have ESPN on one, I have uh, Fox Sports, and on them, on the, when I press down the, the tab and it shows me the different sports, it shows me that there's, there, there, there's, there's soccer, there's football, it shows me baseball, all real sports, uh, NASCAR, I can even give that a pass, that I can wrap my mind around that one. Um, but there's another one on there that I can't, I can't get my mind around, and that's the WWE. Um, I, I can't get my mind around, you know, the guys in tights running around doing something that has a predetermined outcome. I, I, I just can't get there. Um, and, and the reason I can't get there is because a true sport is one where you don't know the outcome. There's a competitive nature to it. And so the outcome isn't predetermined. It isn't rigged. Uh, unless at the end of the game there's a holding call that, that ends up in one team getting a touchdown that they don't deserve. Um, I don't know where that, I don't know, I don't know. Um, and so the thing about the WWE is that it has a narrative that is all predetermined with a winner and with a loser. Friends, I, I'm no fan of the WWE, but I am a Christ. And I love the fact that even before he's about to go on the cross, he already says the enemy has been defeated. That's how confident he is. The great thing about being within the story of Christ that you're behind him as the judge, you're not in front of him, that you're on his side, is that you can stand behind him knowing that he has already been victorious and you can be victorious as well. Thank goodness that we are on the winning side of the judge who judges that which is evil and we are no longer identified with that. And so he convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Flip it now. Here's the positive side. Look with me in verse 12. And let's look at his positive ministry to guide us through the truth that comes from the Father through the Son. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I love that. Jesus knows exactly what we can handle, nothing more. He tells us exactly what we need when we need it. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And once again, this is the fifth and final time of these, these paraclete statements, these statements about the Holy Spirit, the good counselor. 
where we get that statement that he is the spirit of truth. Now, I have said to you that when you see the word truth, you should think ultimately that truth is not merely an ideal, but at bottom it is a person. And so you are not too far off if you read spirit of truth and you're reading spirit of Jesus. And so the one who has sent the Son through the Son has now given us the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And he doesn't speak independently of Christ. He doesn't say things on his own authority. He says things within the authority of the triune God. And so he is the breath of God through which the word speaks. And you can trust that the spirit is never, ever going to lead you astray. And this is the key. The key right here to the answering that question, question to that six-year-old child, what is the mission of the spirit? You see it right there. He guides you into all truth. He glorifies Jesus. And he takes what the father has given the son and gives it to us. And so, friends, see this morning that the primary mission of the Holy Spirit is to point you to Christ alone. Let's say that again. The mission, the primary mission of the Spirit in your life is to point you to Jesus. And you go, some of us may in here go, duh, that makes sense. You didn't have to tell me that. I didn't need need to hear a sermon to know that's true. But I would say we do need to hear that because there's been so many Now, I've come across, I've experienced in my own way, and I've seen in so many other avenues or opportunities to serve where people get it wrong. And they see the Spirit as being someone who does something other than what he says he does here. I've seen too many people who have desired to be filled with the Spirit, who desire to see signs and wonders, people who are more mystical, who say they want to see the Spirit break out in revival, they want to see the supernatural, but yet you look at their life, they're more interested in the stuff that he does instead of actually being filled with the Holy Spirit that leads them to point towards Christ. And doesn't Jesus, and doesn't Paul say elsewhere, I want to know nothing about you except for who? Christ and him crucified. And so if you claim to be someone that is all about the Holy Spirit, but you don't look more like Jesus, you have missed the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But if you let the Spirit work in you to transform you, to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to show you where you are not who you are supposed to be, when he does that convicting work and that pointing work towards the Savior, you become more like him. And so my desire is that you would look more like Jesus because you let the ministry of the Spirit do his work in your life. Don't overcomplicate it. See the blessed simplicity here. The blessed simplicity of the Spirit's mission to point you to Jesus. That's it. Point you to Jesus. And I should say this too. I've heard too many people say, the Spirit is like a gentleman. And the Spirit, you know, won't, he, he, he'll let you decide when you want him or, or, or not. And I've just found that to be so strange. Because, again, when I was 16 years old and the Lord got a hold of me, if you asked me to describe that experience, I wouldn't have said, well, God showed up and said, hey, want to join the team? It didn't go like that. God got a hold of me, and the language I was using when I was 16 and 17 was like the Lord had taken me by the collar, pinned me against the wall, and said, you are mine, and I'm never letting go. It's like the Lord grabbed a hold of me and said, I am too jealous for you to let you remain where you are. That sounds like a spirit who's in control to me. 
and pointed me to the Savior. And if that hadn't happened for you yet, my, my prayer is that you would open up your ears, friend, and see that the Spirit is speaking through the Word to point you to Christ. I think we're prepared now to answer a question that has been on many of our minds. Um, and it's the question that some of you have asked me. And if you've been on social media recently, um, it, it's probably on your mind. It's this question, uh, how do you measure revival? And so if you have uh, been on social media or, or you've seen the news, I think it, actually there ended up being a couple segments. I think Fox News ended up, ended up having this as well, is that there's been something of what appears to be a revival that has, you know, have we seen this? Yeah, something that's been like a revival breaking out at Asbury University. And over this last week, it's also uh, seemed to spread to other college campuses, university campuses. I think, I think Stanford University is one of them and, and other places. And so some of you have said, how do I process this? Is this a genuine revival? Is this good? Should I be, should I be skeptical? What should be my approach? Well, let me, let me answer that. Let me see if I can help here. First, I would ask you to consider your posture when you see things like this happen. It's worth repeating again and again and again that we would have a mind that thinks critically, but that we would not have a critical spirit. Um, I've come across too many people that everyone else is guilty until proven innocent, until we string together uh, the theological words that they want to hear for them to be satisfied. Don't, don't have a critical spirit, friend. But instead, consider this. If there was ever a time in recent history where our country has been more divided along racial lines, confusion over what it means, basic questions over what it means to be man or woman, political division, global division, if there was ever a time to pray for a big move of God, I think now would be a really good time to be praying for something like that that God would move and salvation would happen across our country in a mighty way. Second thing, a revival by nature is unplanned. Whenever I've heard about a tent revival or this person saying we're going to have a revival, I always find that odd because you don't know. You don't know. You don't get to decide when God moves. He decides when he moves. The Holy Spirit is like the wind, and you can't control the wind. He, he, he blows where he desires to move, and so the Spirit is like the wind. And if it's a move of God, you can guarantee that you can't stop it. It's almost like, it's, it's almost like some words that were said by, by one Jewish man, Gamaliel, who said, if this is actually a move of God, he says to the religious leaders, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so that's what's happening if it's a genuine revival. I think also, you know, it's a genuine revival when the fruit of conviction for sin and brokenness for sin leads and turns people to repentance and salvation. Jonathan Edwards, who was a uh, major player in the first Great Awakening, there's two Great Awakenings. You have one in the 1730s and 40s, another one in the, 1830, in the 18, 1790s through 1840s after the Revolutionary War. And he wrote a little book called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions, talking about some of the things that he was seeing. And so Edwards, with his analytical mind, was able to look at all this phenomena in front of him and said this, the consistent theme was brokenness for sin. And he says this, but in truth, the case seems to plainly be 
that now they feel the pain of their own wound. Talking about people who had gotten saved. They have a watchful eye upon their hearts that they did not used to have. Don't you find this as you get older? Uh, More and more I find myself saying I am a sinner because the more and more the Lord is revealing things to me about myself I hadn't seen previously. They have taken more notice of what sin is there, which is now more burdensome to them. They strive more against it, and they feel more of its strength. So if it's mere emotionalism and there's no heart change, you have no revival. But if you have conviction of sin that leads to a transformation, it may very well show itself in strong emotional ways. But notice, your emotions should never dictate the truth. Your emotions follow the truth. And so I think for some of us who find emotions to be maybe an odd thing, understand God created you, friend, with emotions. This is God's idea. And so when you respond powerfully to the truth of conviction of sin and of righteousness and judgment, and the Spirit has pointed you to Jesus, and you go, who am I, a man of unclean lips? Forgive me, Lord, save me. When you have that in Mass, man, you have evidence of the fruit of revival. And so you will see also the Spirit, as we've been saying, pointing to Jesus and his word. And so I would ask you to be praying this way, that we would be optimistic to see a move of God in our time, and that we wouldn't miss it. I heard someone recently say this to me, um, in our skepticism, uh, if Jesus came to be the pastor of your church, 95% of you would say, yeah, let's make him the pastor, and 5% would say, well, maybe we need to talk about it and think about it for a minute, right? Let's not miss something that God may be doing, but let us look for the fruit that leads to repentance. That's what we should be praying for. And as we look for that, let us ask the Lord that he would do the same thing in our own lives. I want to end by asking you this question, then we'll be done. I want you to imagine that you've died and you've gone to heaven and you're standing there with the Old Testament saints and Elijah walks up to you and he says, wow, I can't wait to talk to you. He says to you, look, I ministered in the Old Testament, the Old Testament period, and the Holy Spirit came down on specific people for a specific time, for a specific purpose. But didn't you live after Jesus rose from the dead? Didn't didn't the Spirit get poured out after that happened? And so you mean to tell me you've had the Holy Spirit in your life ever since you believed in Jesus and called on his name? Tell me, what was it like to have the presence of the living God in you for all of your days after you met the Savior? What would you say to him? Would you be maybe a little bit embarrassed? Um, Would you you know what to say? Would you feel shame of going, I don't know how to respond to that? Friend, my prayer would be that you would be able to get to the end of your life and when you see Jesus face to face and maybe, I don't know, stand and talk with some of those Old Testament saints, we would all be able to say, I didn't find him, he found me. And when he found me in his jealousy, because he loved me, he convicted me of my sin and I was never the same again. And when he convicted me of my sin, he pointed me to the Savior And as he pointed me to the Savior, I grew in the Christian life to look more like Jesus. 
All because the Spirit came in. Friend, if you haven't lived in the power of the Spirit to become more like Jesus, today is the day. For some of us to do that for the first time and for the rest of us to be convicted so that we would go out from here and people would look at us and say, what do they have that I don't have? And the answer would be the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.